Good evening. Good to see you all. My name's Jake. I'm one of the pastoral residents here at Redemption. And if this is your first time, welcome. It's good to have you guys. And I uh, currently, as a pastoral resident, direct the middle school ministries as well as have the opportunity to every once in a while preach the Word of God. And so it is my joy today that I get to continue in the story of Mark's gospel. And so we're going to jump right into it, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. There'll be someone who's passing out Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, that's actually that Bible right there is our gift to, gift to you. I'd ask that you keep that and continue to grow in the knowledge and the Word of God. Last week, we talked about a couple of different stories in Jesus' ministry when he kicked off his ministry. And what it does is it starts to get all these crowds surrounded around him. Everybody's freaking out. Jesus is doing miracles. Things are happening. And it creates this really exciting moment at the beginning of Mark's story. They say, Jesus is speaking with authority. And in our normal lives, we really do love being around people who speak with authority. And I don't mean authority is in like oppressive, like boss type, but authority is in someone speaking in a way that you're so convinced that they're so convinced that you want to believe whatever it is they have to say. I, I used to wrestle when I was in high school, and when I first started off my wrestling career, I was terrible. And I had this coach, Coach Fernandez, who such a passionate man about wrestling. And he used to always say to me, son, you're going to be good. You're going to be a champ next year. You're going to win this match. And I just got the first 16 matches before that. I got absolutely destroyed. And yet I would hear him say that, and I'd be like, oh, I, I want to believe that. I want what, what he's saying, and so I'd want to be around him anytime I could. I'd want to be around my coach, listen to his encouragement. And so that's what's happening here today when we pick up in Mark chapter 2. Jesus has been pulling miracles and speaking and things becoming realities. And as he continues to do so, people want to be around him. All it takes is for a rumor that Jesus is back in his hometown of Capernaum and for people to get excited, rush in, and crowd around. Jesus has been saying, the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Believe in the gospel. And they come out, and everybody starts crowding around him because he's speaking with such an authority and a conviction that even if these people are like, I don't know if I necessarily believe everything that he's saying, they want to believe it because of the conviction and authority in which he is speaking. Every time Jesus gets around, somehow that veil curtain of evilness in the world gets pushed back a little bit more. He says, don't have leprosy, and someone just stops having leprosy. Someone has a demon, and he says, get out, demon, and the demon just gets out. And so when we pick up right here in Mark chapter 2, it's not very surprising how popular he is. In verse 1, it starts, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So right now, what we see is that the town of Capernaum, which is in the northern part of Galilee, really where the beginning of Jesus' ministry kicks off, 
people are so excited to see him that they pack out a house. Now, this house was most likely the house that they were in a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is healing Simon's mother. And so it wasn't a very large house by any means. It was just a normal-sized house, and for Galilee, primarily be a fisherman's house, it wasn't an expensive house by many means. And yet people are so desperate to get near Jesus, we get to zoom in on the story of four guys who are just as desperate because they hear the rumors about Jesus. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So right now in this story, Mark's gospel really slows down and gives us a lot of extra details. And it's kind of inviting us to kind of like put ourselves in the position of the story and really imagine what is going on. You've got a house, pretty small, and it's packed with people. Because Jesus is in there, and you hear the rumors that he's been healing people. Miracles that don't happen anywhere else. It's just as miraculous back then as it would have been today. And yet there's four guys who have a friend who's paralyzed, can't walk. We don't know how long. We don't know what exactly caused this. We just know that he can't get around so bad that it takes four of his friends to pick him up and carry him. And they hear Jesus has been healing people. And you think, what if we got our friend to Jesus? And so you can imagine they show up, and they show up to this house where Jesus is preaching the word. He's talking about the good news of the kingdom and all the evil in the world getting restored and pushed back. And then they get to the front door, and they see it's overflowing with people so much, there's no way they're getting in. Imagine there's this moment where they were going, should we just come back? Is there a better time? I mean, maybe this really isn't worth it. What can we do? I mean, it's compl- there's no way we're getting in by ourselves, much less all four of us carrying our friend. And so one of the brainy guys gets this crazy idea. Let's get on the roof. And back then, the roof wasn't necessarily like roofs that we have here. You wouldn't just climb on top of this roof. You'd need a ladder. Back then, they had staircases that would go onto the top of the roof, and you'd be able to walk up top. And it was really a roof, in a lot of ways, a multi-purpose room. You could clean your laundry and hang out to dry there. People could escape out of the darkness of the house and get a chance to be outside. They would chat and hang out there. And so it was a place that you definitely could have access to. And so they climb up top, and they decide to start digging out the roof, it says. And what they do is, I don't know if they use shovels or if they use their hands or what exactly they use, but back in the day, the roofing would have been built by just beams across the top and then a bunch of little sticks right in between. And then they would pack it down with mud. So it was solid, but it was made out of clay, and so it could have been dug out. And so at which point they decided it's a great idea to start just ripping apart parts of the roof and get their friend down in there. Imagine at this point Jesus is preaching. He's hitting the high point of his sermon. This is where it's, he's going to drop the good news. It's going to be really good. And then someone next to him just like, Pff. and everyone looks up, and the roof is getting ripped away, and there's four guys looking in. And the response that Jesus has is something quite surprising for them, and it's something quite loving. I mean, I wonder as they lower down 
their friend what the lame man's thinking? What if he heals me? What if he won't heal me? What if, because we interrupted, they kick us out and I don't have a chance to see Jesus? And what if their friends are thinking that? I mean, what if we just, what if he gets upset and we should have come back in another time, but now we're never going to have a chance to be around this Jesus? What's going to go on? And yet, amidst all their hesitations, they just desperately try to get to Jesus. And when I think about this story, I really think, in my life and in our own lives, are there ever moments where we do want to get near to Jesus? Whether you're a Christian or whether this is maybe some of the first times that you've wandered into church, is there a moment where we want to get near to Jesus and you feel a sudden desperation, like, this could be really good, and you get held back with mountains of what-ifs. What if God's angry because of what I did last night? What if my past is too ugly for him to want to have a relationship with me? I mean, maybe I'm just not the type of right person to be a Christian, or you know what, I really do want to enjoy worship tonight, but I don't feel like I acted like a Christian this week. But the response of Jesus to this man as they let him down the roof is one of love. Just says a couple of simple words. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He sees them, sees their interruption of his amazing message. I mean, this is Jesus, the Lord of the universe, talking and preaching. And they're interrupting him. He's changing the course of human history at this point. And sees their destruction to the property of his friends. Sees their assumption that for some reason they are the people that should be breaking through and they're the ones that are the most important in the moment. All for the sake of their friends so that he can get his legs back. And he rewards it. I mean, let's just stop for a moment. They don't know Jesus. None of these four men. They didn't necessarily love him. They didn't worship him as God and recognize him as the Savior and Messiah. From what we know, they really just heard some rumors about Jesus and have a mild superstition that maybe if they could just get their friend around this Jesus guy, life could be better. Life could be better for their friend, who they desperately care about. And yet Jesus sees their desperation, and he calls that faith. This is the first time that Mark's gospel actually mentions faith. And when it mentions that faith, the way it describes it is this desperation just to get next to Jesus. And when I was reading through this, it reminded a lot of my own story of how I became a Christian. I didn't become a Christian until I was about 20 years old. And it really began with really a lot of circumstances in my life started getting really bad. A lot of relationships were falling apart. My family life was really hard. I just started getting this dissatisfaction with life altogether. And I remember at one point praying to God, God, if you will just make my life a little bit better, I'll do this whole Christian thing. I grew up going around church, and I just knew, you know, if, if you will fix my life and make it a little bit more enjoyable, I'll do this whole Christian thing. And so I started showing up to church. 
I started going to the 7 o'clock service and sitting there all by myself and walking out awkwardly. And I started going to Bible studies, and I sat there and didn't know what anybody was talking about. The first book of the Bible we went through was Ephesians, and they were talking about powers and spiritual authorities. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. And yet I kept coming back because I had this feeling that if I could just get near to Jesus, if I could just get near his people, if I could just get near to church, maybe it'll make my life better. And maybe you've had that moment yourself, or a story like that yourself. Maybe in the midst of your life, you don't really know a whole ton about Jesus or church and what this is all about, and yet something in you goes, eh, maybe if I could just get near this stuff, it would be good for me, because that's how I felt. If I could just get around God a little bit, maybe life will be better. And for Mark's gospel, and for Jesus, that's enough faith. He looks at the man, he looks at these men who carry him, and he rewards their faith by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Yet what he says to a lame man, those words, are kind of a surprise, right? We can gloss over it very quickly and go, yeah, he forgave his sins. That's what Jesus does. He's a sin forgiver. But they weren't coming for that. They were coming to have his legs fixed. I mean, imagine they let him down in the midst of all those people, kind of embarrassed, but still desperately trying to get him to their friend. And then Jesus looks at this man and lovingly says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I wonder if everybody there was like, is that it? Are you? He still can't walk. Are you going to do anything about that? And up until this point, there's really nothing that Jesus like, doesn't have any opposition. He's just got crowds that are cheering him on, excited about what the healings that he's doing. And yet, as soon as he sees, says these words, son, your sins are forgiven, we see the first oppositions in Mark's gospel from the people around him. Pick up in verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? So, Jesus is crazy popular, and yet, for whatever reason, he says this, and now we've got these people, the scribes, who are kind of sitting in the corner going, why is he talking like that? So the scribes, back in the day, were really the upholders of the Jewish tradition and law. They would have been the experts and the people who would have been writing everything down from religious texts and laws and all the way down to just common law practices. And they really were the experts in what it meant to be God's people and what it meant to be obeying the law. And so they had really, in a lot of ways, all their ducks in a row. They knew all of the traditions that they had to follow. And in a lot of ways, they, as the years went over, they became, as a group, the scribes obsessed with formalism. Meaning they were concerned so much with the outward signs of the moral code that they began to neglect what God's laws, what his Torah was really there for. The shaping of a people, the shaping for the inward heart. But all the same, what made these men go, yay, healings, great, this is awesome, to he's blaspheming. Which was as good as saying to someone like, we should kill him. Back in the day, blaspheming was just a quick sentence of, if you could be convicted of it, it was a death penalty. The problem for the scribes in this moment is not if this man's sins can or cannot be forgiven. The problem for the scribes is the means by which it's happening. 
The problem for them is this man, Jesus, presumes that he has the power to do what only God can do. They have a problem with this man coming in and just simply stating something that they knew their whole lives that when you did something against God, sacrifices had to be made. Animals had to be slaughtered. Even just to get into the temple, they would have to purify themselves and go through these rituals just to get around God in order to worship him. It'd be like if you guys walked in here today, and before you get in, I had to stop you, and all the pastors around stopping and you said, all right, here's your lamb, go kill it. Now you can get inside. And so they knew sin can only be forgiven with sacrifices. In their head, sin had to, be, had, had to have death in order to clear it up. And God was the only one who would actually forgive sins. For the scribes, they were fine with miracles. They were fine with healings. Even curious, even excited. And that's why you see that they're in this group that surrounded Jesus to hear, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? But they were not okay with the type of restoration that Jesus was talking about. See, for sin, the thing that happens is it distorts our vision. The men came in thinking, you know what? It would just be nice if my friend's legs were restored. It would be nice if God could fix the circumstances of life. But they were not okay with Jesus proclaiming that the relationship between this man and God was completely restored just by him saying, it's forgiven. One man could never possibly do what Jesus just did. Of course they cried blasphemy. Nobody's ever presumed to do this in their entire lives. What Jesus just did is he just took the control of forgiveness of their entire religious system and put it in his hands in one moment. If you want a relationship with Jesus, consider that Jesus has a habit of often giving far more than we ask for. I just wanted to have a better life. I just wanted the relationships to not be so ugly. I just wanted to be less dissatisfied and depressed all the time in my life. And so I came to church and I kept coming. And I had no idea that Jesus had a far better plan, a far better idea of what he was going to do with my life and how he was going to restore me. In the same way, Jesus looks at this man who really just, he just wants his legs fixed. And he sees something else that needs to be fixed. His relationship and brokenness in relation to God. The sinister thing about sin is it's okay with partial fixes. And the sinister thing about sin is that it gets so deep that it will clutch on to a religious system like the scribes did and will hesitate when God offers full forgiveness just by the words of his mouth. My dad is a chiropractor, and so I grew up getting adjusted all the time. It was just normal for me. And so a couple of weeks ago, I went rock climbing, and it was in a gym, and I fell, and I landed, and kind of weird on my neck and hurt myself. And the next day, I wake up, and I was kind of like... <laughs> so I was like, call up my dad. I'm like, hey, can I come see you? And he's like, yeah, I gotta, got some time tomorrow. I'm like, no, can I see you right now? And he's like, all right, yeah, come up. And I go to his office, and he stands me up, and he says, all right, I want you to stand straight. Look down, 
and then stand up straight as best you can. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he looks at me and he laughs. And he goes, do you think that's straight? In the same way, what sin will often do is when we come to God, we're okay with it just fixing our circumstances. Sin will make us think, yeah, I'm straight. I'm lined up. And so my dad comes, and he's like, all right, let's get you fixed, and let's get you adjusted. And there's this moment where he's going to adjust my neck, and he's got my head in his hands. And so when your neck is really tightened up and hurting, it's kind of uncomfortable and scary to have someone, like, about to twist your neck. I don't care if you're 20 years you've had your dad adjusting your neck. And yet, even though 20 years I've had my dad adjust me, and he's always helped me and never once hurt me, I was sitting there, and he, for a moment, he's like, all right, you need to relax. And I couldn't in that moment just relax and release and give him control. I'd rather my neck be hurt than let that go and let him have hold of that. And that's what the scribes are doing. See, we either come to God and we go, you know what, I would just like my circumstances fixed, or we end up coming like the scribes and go, okay, I want to be around God, but I'm not going to give up this control. And we do it in a lot of ways, and we really don't even recognize it. It looks often like, you know what, I know Jesus has forgiven me, but last night was really bad, and I don't know if I could pray to God right now. Maybe I'll wait a couple of days. Or because of the circumstances or some memory gets brought up of how you used to be or what you've done in the past, and so you're sitting in service going, I don't know if I could actually pray that loud. I feel like I might be a hypocrite. Sin twists and distorts our view of how we are, and then it rejects God's forgiveness that he's speaking by just his word. Like the four men and their paralyzed friend, sin may have us so blinded, we're satisfied with something so much less than what God is actually offering. You see, the scribes in their heart are sitting there in the corner, screaming inside, no, 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 it can't be that easy. You can't just say sins are forgiven. It's not that simple, Jesus. We've got a system. We've got a religion going on. But Jesus continues on to show just how easy it is. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Why does Jesus question the scribes? I mean, he can read their minds somehow in that moment when they're sitting in the corner. They didn't say anything, and so he asked them a question that I'm sure if he can see into the depths of their hearts, probably already knows the answer for. And yet he's in the midst of this crowd, and he's teaching them something. And Mark is showing through his story a very clashing moment where it's asking us, who is this Jesus man that presumes this, 
presumes he is the authority to speak and do what only God can do. He's, expo- he's exposing the assumption that everyone in that room has. The scribes, the men carrying their friend, they doubt often the same way that we might. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And we go, I don't know if it can be that easy. There was just no way, Jesus, there's no way that you could just simply say, you're forgiven and have it be done once and for all. A couple years ago, I went to Russia and I took a trip to teach English. And one of the times I ended up taking a trip to uh, the Hermitage Museum, which is this second largest art museum in the world. It was beautiful. And I spent my whole day there with two students that I was in charge of and was just there to get their conversational English up. And so I'd just be chatting with them. And so on our way home, we take the subway back. And everything in this day has been amazing so far. And yet there's this moment where Max and then the girl Nastia, who I was with, are looking at each other. They kind of turn away from me and start talking really fast. And they're speaking in Russian. And I don't speak Russian at all. So I start freaking out. And so they're kind of like talking in a very panicked way. And I look at Nastia and she's like blinking around and she's getting really like, you can tell in her body language, she's worried about something. And this happened out of nowhere. And so I look at Max and I'm like, Max, what's going on? What's happening? He's like, hold on. And then he keeps speaking in Russian. I'm like, what? What's happening, Max? And he looks at me, and he's like, Nastia says she can't see. I was like, what? Says she can't see, and she can't hear. I'm like, oh, okay. And so inside, I'm like, oh, dear God, please do something right now. I'm in charge of these kids. Something's happening, and I'm freaking out. And so we grab Nastia's hands when the train stops, and we get out, and we walk outside whole time she's starting to like tear up because she can't see and she's holding our hands and we don't know what happened and we get outside and a couple of seconds after walking outside she can see again she could hear again everything's okay and I hear them again just start going back and forth in Russian and she's she's lightening up she's okay I don't know what happened and I'm like what ha- what happened Max what happened and he just goes oh she's just being an idiot what he's like yeah in his broken English. And, and she, Nastia, begins to tell the story. She goes, I uh, haven't been eating the last week or so. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, I haven't been eating. I haven't been drinking a lot of water. And so I kind of started losing my sight and blacking out for a little moment. I'm like, Nastia, why would you do this? And she goes, well, I'm trying to get the dirt off my soul. And I was like, what? She's like, I, I've done things, and I have a dirty soul, and so I've heard from the church and from things that I, I need to do something to get myself clean. I've got a dirty soul, she kept repeating. It's like, wow. And so we get on this bus, and I begin to tell Nastia and, and Max about Jesus and about the gospel and the good news and how Jesus forgives sins just by his words, just by his actions and what he's done. And there's nothing that we can do, need to do, to make his forgiveness complete. And throughout the weeks that I was in Russia, she kept coming back to me and she's like, Jake, have you heard of the seven deadly sins? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, what about those? Can God forgive those? I'm like, yeah, God can forgive those. She's like, okay. And she gets excited and she'd run away. And then she'd come back a couple days later. Jake, 
are you sure there's nothing God can for, not forgive? I'm like, Nasty, there's nothing God cannot forgive. He'll forgive you for anything. And his forgiveness is there for you because of what Jesus has done. And she'd smile and she'd be like, okay, right. And the whole time that I was there, she kept coming and asking me, what about this? What about this? Are you sure God can forgive sins? Because she had the same question that the scribes, that everyone in that room, and that everyone here sometimes has. It can't be that easy for Jesus just to say, your sins are forgiven and them to be forgiven. And we either, like the scribes, find a religious system where we got to add on to what Jesus has already said, what he's already completed, or we come to God like the paralyzed man and his friends, just okay with a partial fix. See, there's no way that it could be actually that good, is what they cry out. And Jesus responds with a really interesting way of proving himself. It says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. Jesus comes to this man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And when everyone questions him, he goes, what do you think is easier? Because everyone in that room is going, it's not that easy. It can't be that easy, Jesus. But what we can see is that by Jesus saying, get up and walk, he's proving with what we can see, what we can't see. He's proving that by healing this man's paralysis, he is the authority and the power to declare over this man just as well that the paralysis in which he can't come to God because he's got dirt on his soul has been broken and has been healed and has been restored in the same way. See, Jesus knows that for it to be that simple, though, a couple things have to happen. He says, so you may know the Son of Man. And he uses this title. It's a special title that Jesus will use continued throughout the mark. And sometimes it refers to his authority to speak as if God was speaking. But sometimes it refers to the Son of Man who's going to have to go and suffer and die and be crucified. In In the last verse, he says, pick up your bed and rise. And he gets up and he rises and Jesus tells him, go home. Run home. Use your legs. Sprint. Laugh. Jump up and down. Feel in your toes the dirt that you've never felt for however long. And every time you do and you feel those feet running, remember that I spoke that into creation. And the reason that this man can flex his feet and move his legs is because Jesus' legs were pinned down the wood and his feet bones were broken with a nail. And this man was able to sprint and run and feel his lungs get air and be excited because Jesus had a slow asphyxiation and death on the cross. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals them also. And what he's doing is he's showing everyone there, I came not to just fix the ugliness of the world. I came to fix the separation between mankind and God. And it's as easy as me saying, it's just real. You're forgiven. Because Jesus knows that the moment he says that, he's taken the sins and he's carrying them down to the cross. 
that man can walk free, and he can have forgiveness, and we can all have forgiveness, because Jesus takes the sins on himself, and he walks down to the cross in which God's wrath pours out on one moment on Jesus. The response that the people have is the same one that we should have today. We never saw anything like this. Because there's really nothing in the world that actually has forgiveness like this. Nothing's this easy. Not in our interactions or relationships. Is it as quick as you're forgiven and it's done? It doesn't work like that in our work and our job scenarios. Nothing is as quick as just Jesus saying, you're forgiven and he's forgiven. And yet, what Mark is doing in this story is he's telling the story about Jesus, and he gets to the end, and the people celebrate, and you kind of like wonder, where did the scribes go? What did they do? What? And you're left with these questions. And yet one that gets into you as a reader is, who is this Jesus man? Who is this man that is just speaking and people are getting healed? Who is this man that's just saying you're forgiven, and he's forgiven? Whether we're more like the men bringing the friends of the scribes, just I kind of wanted to get near Jesus, hoping that he'll fix our lives, get something better. Or the scribes, and we really get clammed up and hold on to our religion, our systems, our things that we do in order to make God's forgiveness a little bit better. This leaves us with the same question every time. What authority does Jesus actually have? In fact, what authority do we let him have in our lives? Do we make forgiveness as simple as him speaking it? Do we try to add on to it? Or are you in a place in your life where you're really just hoping that circumstances of your life might get fixed and a little bit better? And as we close everything down for tonight and we close this story, I want us to just continue to ask that question. As you sit and have a chance to pray, be asking that question, what authority does Jesus have in my life? How much do I actually believe that he just says I'm forgiven and that I'm forgiven? Would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for the good news. I thank you that you came to this world and you didn't just heal and fix people, but you restored the relationships that they had with you. I pray that you would help us understand God. Give us some clarity, some insight into where exactly in our hearts do we allow you to have authority. I pray, God, that you would continue to show us Jesus as we continue through the story of Mark. And that you would give us grace, Lord, and that we would be able to call him Lord. Call him Savior and to continue to love him. Lord, I pray these things your name. I pray these things that we might worship you more fully. Amen.